0: Hey, stackers. Earlier this week, I posted a timeline for the month of August and mentioned that later in the week, I'd revisit some things. Well, here we are. I'd like to take a few minutes just to go back and look at a couple things that have been on my mind recently and really wanted to share with you. And hopefully, again, you'll find some use in this. I think it's kind of neat stuff to consider. First, I want to start with a topic that has been bugging me for a long, long time. It's one that I'm embarrassed to admit I flubbed at the time of recording, and I feel compelled to set it right. What makes it even more embarrassing to me is that it has to do with a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and to get it pretty well wrong has eaten at me, which is why I have this urge to address it. So after a shaky breath, here goes... I'm talking about my intro to and execution of the Song of the Witani. I've noticed recently we've gotten a few more hits on that particular special episode. And if you don't remember it or never listened to it, it's available in our catalog of episodes. You can go back and check it out. I will admit that I do enjoy the finished product of the song. But there were some particulars that I was incorrect about, or at least inexact And so I'd like to go back and take a quick look at some things that will serve as a good foundation. If you'll recall, I have based the Witani culture on the Anglo-Saxons, the Old English period of England. And there were very specific aspects of Old English poetry that I drew upon in creating this song. So I want to make things right here and hopefully clarify some things that I got wrong before. I had some of it correct, the fact that individual lines are broken into two halves and alliteration plays a heavy role, but what I got wrong was how that alliteration plays out in the line. As a quick reminder, alliteration is where words begin with a similar letter sound. I think the best way I've heard this explained is that for inflected languages, that is languages where the ends of words change to show what role they play in a sentence, alliteration is like rhyming but it happens at the start of the word instead of at the end like we're used to in modern English. For instance, we can see alliteration happening in the phrase a gaggle of gruff geese, where those hard G sounds begin the words and tie them together. Basically, what I want to share is that there's a lot more complexity going on in Old English poetry than I really covered in that previous episode. For one thing, alliteration in Old English poetry, should fall on the accented feet, or the stressed syllables. So I made up a silly example. If we say, the big and bad wolf bit the brightest bean, because we know how much wolves love beans, but notice how big, bad, bit, bright, and bean all were the accented words in that sentence. If you take a look at Old English poetry, you'll find that the stressed syllables are where we will tend to find the alliterated sounds in a line. The next thing, vowels are considered to alliterate with each other, but they often tend to be the same vowel. There's obviously room for throwing off this trend for the sake of poetic interest, but sticking close to the guidelines might help it to feel a bit more real, I guess. So if we reworked our example sentence from the previous point, we might change it to the big wolf bit the bill Uh, and so we continued to retain the alliteration on the stressed syllables but we changed all the vowel sounds to that short i sound big bit bill that's not a hard and fast rule of course again leaving room for artistic representation that sort of thing it's perfectly fine to, to play with that. And and maybe you want to use different sounds to bring out different feelings or or play into the feeling of a line, whatever. Generally speaking, Old English poetry try to use the same vowel sounds within a certain line. The last point I want to share in this section and the part that I completely missed in my first time through is that the alliterated sound is carried into the second half of the line. If you'll remember... A typical line of Old English poetry, you have the first half, and then you have a pause, and that's usually indicated by several spaces, and then you have the second half of the line. And and Old English historians think that perhaps the poet reciting the poem would say the first half, strum a little bit on a harp or some kind of instrument, and then say the second half. And the alliterated sound then becomes a tie that brings the first and second half of the line together. Also, that alliterated sound tends to be the first accented syllable of the second half of the line. To illustrate this, I thought it would be better to go to Old English itself. And I pulled a line at random from Beowulf that illustrates this. And that line is, Sejic Sunu is. And if we were to translate that into modern English, it would be, I'll tell you a truth, son of ejlov. But notice the first half of the line, Sej Ich You hear that S sound, Sedja Ich uh, The Notice again that it's not only the same sound, but it also falls on accented syllables. But then the second half of the line that first accented syllable has that same s sound and so you've tied the first half and the second half of the line together through that similar sound there's reasons for it uh, mainly it would be easier to remember where you were in the poem it'd be easier to remember the second half of the line if you remember oh yeah this is that s line that i have to say next And of course, strumming in between gives you time to recollect, regather your thoughts. And so there's a lot of things working through this that add complexity. If you want more detail on the complexities and the the structure of Old English poetry, you can check out the Building Blocks of Old English Poetry, and I'll provide a link in the show notes. There's a lot of things to think about, and getting down to this level of understanding of what might seem easy has really helped my appreciation for the work that went into making these ancient poems. As I was considering this, I began thinking, oh no, (laughs) Uh, what does this mean? Does it mean that I need to go back and rework the Song of the Witani?" I may end up doing that at some future date. I may find that it just bugs me too much to not fall as closely in line with what I was trying to pattern it after. And so I think maybe that's where I'm headed. It's hard for me to say at this point. Or I may just choose to wave my hand, and say that while I've based the Witani culture on that of the Anglo-Saxons, it's not an exact port, and so the Witani do it differently. I really don't know at this point, but stay tuned. If I do end up reworking it, look for that in a special episode that's released later. The other thing that I want to cover in this special episode is some correspondence that came out of one of our recent Creation Corner episodes, and that particular episode was the one where we discussed geography, working geography into your world creation efforts as a dungeon master. I found this episode to be a lot of fun to plan and put together. I learned some things along the way about things that affect the climate and the people of a country, considerations that I really hadn't thought of. But as you get into this, you find that you get excited, or at least I find that I get excited about the prospect of building, of thinking through things. And that, to me, that's one of the huge benefits of playing this game. If you are like me, as you get into it, you begin to find yourself wanting to improve the details, to enhance the, the world feel for your players and for yourself. And I find myself getting into researching specific bits of knowledge and working it into games, which makes them more compelling and engaging for me. And I think it comes through to the players, too. Anyway... I thought I'd share some parts of this correspondence, and then as we go, I'll throw in some comments of my own, because I think there's a lot of good to draw from it. This was an email exchange, and remember, we love to hear from our stackers through our email address at stack.o.dice at gmail.com, or if you want to hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at stackadice, we love to hear from you that way too. This particular email exchange came from our friend Ted, who has shared a lot of fun things with us over the course of our show. In one of his emails, he provided a map of the area that he's talking about, and he had this to say, Much of it is blank, because I fill it in as I go along. If I need a city, town, ruin, or river to be somewhere, then I add it. And to that I say, absolutely. That's a perfect way to do it. If you'll ever go to our wiki, uh, Vardalon.fandom.com, and dig around for our map of Vardalon that we have shared there, You'll notice that there is not much to it at all. It's basically a Photoshop tutorial that I went through and created the world. It's just a bunch of country outlines. There's not even names on it anywhere. What it did though, was it provided a framework that allowed Thane and me to start thinking about what could go in this country, what could be here. For initial planning purposes, it was very helpful to have something to look at. But as we got into the game and the player started moving around, Actually having an open framework like that, a blank map, really did make it possible for me to throw in things as needed. Places like Sedge or Flynnmore or Ankar. These came up in the game and they were they grew organically through the process of playing. And of course I did write up descriptions of them, but basically I could tell for the most part where they were wanting to go, and so A lot of these places really sprang into existence at the moment. And then as they actually got to them, I had time, of course, to write up the descriptions and share with them the the details that hopefully bring it to life. But that's been a really fun part and a great way of approaching it. Uh, Certainly, you do want to have some pre-planned places, names to throw around, places for the characters to want to go explore. But leaving it open, leaving it free, for you to throw things in as needed. I think that's a great way of doing it. Going back to Ted, one thing that makes Stack of Dice interesting is that the heroes travel a lot. Almost every country that they visit is different from the last. The unfortunate side to this is that it doesn't allow enough time to actually learn the country that they had just visited. Essentially, they were just tourists passing through. There is an attraction to this, however. Who doesn't love traveling? And to that I say, true and guilty, absolutely. From the beginning, from the planning stages of this podcast, I wanted this to be a what amounts to a world tour. A chance for the players to get around and experience different cultures, different fields, different areas. And maybe someday, uh, I have a feeling much of the group is going to want to take a long break after we finish the main story. But I think it'd be fun to have Follow on adventures, maybe with different characters that focus on a specific part of the world to really help build it out. I think that'd be neat and fun and really help to dive into specific areas of the world. But Ted is absolutely right. I've wanted this to be a far ranging, exotic feeling game at times. Hang in there, Ted. We'd love to go back and do some more dedicated world building in specific areas. Again, to Ted. In the end of the Creation Corner episode, you said you wanted to know about countries we had created in previous campaigns. In the first campaign where I was a DM, I created a country called Lanzan, and I fashioned the environment much like Texas, except instead of becoming more barren as you head west, as is the case in Texas, it becomes more barren as you head south. When creating environment, I consider the equator and axis of the planet. That's pretty in-depth there. The country is divided by the crying mountains, a vast mountain range that gets its name due to its many waterfalls. The further north of the crying mountains you get, the more civilized it is. As you get further south, the land becomes harsher and the people become more barbaric. While the north is very organized, in the south, government is just a name and doesn't really have an effective presence. I think this is a great way to approach country building. Go with what you know. If you're familiar with a particular area, if you know based on where you live, just look around you and see what is the climate like. What's the amount of vegetation, of forests, of urbanization? Just look at everything around you and use that as a foundation. For one thing, especially if your players live near you, dungeon masters, uh, that will provide a very immediate touch point of reference that your players will be able to connect with because they know the area. Also, if you're more distributed, you know you you have a little more work to do maybe, or a lot more freedom in how you approach things. But going with what you know gives you a ready, I'll say toolkit that you can reach into because you know that maybe 20 miles away, the next town over or whatever, suddenly the soil is rockier or there's coast or whatever. You can draw upon that to help add detail and life to your worlds. So use that. Very good. Ted goes on to say, Lansen is ruled by a king. He stays in Pelora, which is one of the cities he's created, and has assigned six dukes to run the six separate regions of Lansen. The dukes have each appointed an earl over each city. Unlike the dukes, the earls might not be related to the king, but they must have proven loyalty. And really, here Ted is reaching into politics. He's reaching into the government of the country. And that's neat, too. We covered politics in a separate Creation Corner episode. And this sort of setup could lead to lots of new opportunities in the world. Uh, You open up the game to things like political intrigue, like Thane and I talked about in that episode. You open things up to turmoil, uh, what happens if a bad duke gets into power. Or if one decides, you know what, I've had it with the king and now you have a civil war going on. There's all sorts of possibilities that open up when you start getting to this level of detail in your world. Going back to the Crying Mountains, Ted mentions that north of the Crying Mountains, life is civilized and relatively peaceful, while south becomes more lawless. The Crying Mountains are the great landmark of Lanzan. Often, adventurers scale these mountains or try to reach the top They aren't particularly high, but no one knows where the water for all these waterfalls is coming from. Also, inside the mountain, it's crawling with creatures. And that's a neat feature, because now you have a ready draw for your party. You have built in a need for adventurers. And that makes for an easy planning session for the DM. Border towns are being raided by these creatures that are boiling out of the mountains now. Or the water has stopped, or whatever. Go investigate. That's a great way to build things into your campaign setting. I remember with great fondness. I have a couple boxed sets of Undermountain from the original or from the second edition Forgotten Realms uh, campaign setting, and uh, Undermountain is just this huge, I mean, gigantic uh, dungeon that exists under a mountain that uh, Waterdeep bumps up against. And I mean, you could have an entire campaign level one through twenty just trying to run through and clear out this ruin underneath the city... It's really helpful to a DM to have this as an alternative for the main campaign storyline or whatever... or it could be part of the main campaign storyline for all I know. It's just a matter of knowing what your players are looking for and finding ways to work that in. He describes a particular place... Near the Gulf is Royal Harbor. I haven't come up with a reason for it to have that name yet, but I like the way it sounds. Most of the economy there comes from fishing. Unfortunately, fishing takes a serious hit for three months out of the year. During the fall season, sea serpents that grow to be 20 to 30 feet long move into the gulf. They're not aggressive creatures, but they eat a lot of fish and they're very careless. It's, <laughs> it's not uncommon for one to come up beneath a boat and upend it or to swat one with a tail as it swims by. So even though they're not aggressive, they are dangerous. I think that's wonderful storytelling right there. Uh, You have already built into a a very specific part of your world some neat possibilities. For one thing, it's a lot of local flavor. People know you stay out of the water for that three-month span. Do they have ceremonies where they perhaps ceremonially welcome the sea serpents to the water or ceremonially bid them farewell when the season is over? Do they provide offerings to try and appease these sea serpents that they really can't do much about? Could this open the door for an underwater campaign? I've heard a great episode on the Dungeon Masters block years ago about running underwater campaigns and the kinds of things that opens up for you. You can have a lot of fun trying to figure out the mechanics of running a game underwater. Could there be contests who can stay out on the surface of the water the longest without being upset? It's almost like going to a rodeo today. You could have a lot of fun with these sorts of things, maybe even build on some skill challenges for players uh, as they try and go out and maybe show the people how they could do their fishing without being interrupted. Really, the possibilities are quite endless here, and that's just some neat ideas that spring from this particular area of Ted's world. Pelora is the capital of Lanzan, and it's near the mountains of War-Torn Mines, so that they can do a lot of trading with the dwarves there. Unfortunately, the dwarves have been busy fighting off goblins for the past few years. Oddly, Ted has never had any of his characters or any of his book, he writes books about uh, these places. Uh, It's never been visited by a character. There are people that are from Pallora, but no one has ever actually been to the city. My thought on this is, if you're using places as background settings, that's perfectly fine. It helps to build in atmosphere. It helps to build in a sense of depth to the world. Maybe a place is just too forbidding. Maybe a place is too secure. You could really do just about anything with a place and have it never really visited, but just the fact that it's there helps to give a sense of greater reality to the world that you've built. I think that's a neat idea. Ted says, heading south, you could go west and follow the straight coast, And he's thinking about dropping in a marsh somewhere. Or you could head through the dry lands toward Mox. And Mox is interesting because the people there consider themselves to be free. They enjoy the lack of government. It is heavily populated by all forms of life. Humans, orcs, goblins, and other species coexist in this one city. While you're there, you need to be mindful that in Mox, law is just a suggestion. Many of the most hardened warriors and mercenaries claim to have come from Mox. The harsh climate and lack of control breeds tough people. While there are other small civilizations to the South, it is assumed that Southerners are from Mox, just like Americans assume that people from California are from Los Angeles. Uh, that's, that's a neat idea. And I think in his correspondence, Ted mentioned it's a lot like Moss Eisley, the, the cantina town from Star Wars. That sounds wonderful. Uh, you need a place where you can go... Uh, every now and then, and not really have to worry about niceties. Maybe there's a a booming black market there. The lack of regulation, the lack of law, makes it more open to trading and and obtaining items that are hard to find elsewhere. So uh, this kind of location can become very helpful to a dungeon master if you're struggling to figure out, how do I get this item to the players? Oh, well, direct them to this shady town, and now they have access to things that they wouldn't otherwise. It becomes something of a deus ex machina that makes it possible for you to open things up to your players. I like it. And now for Dunzen, and this is the last section that I'm going to share with you from Ted's correspondence with me. Like New York, Dunzen is its own world. A person could live their entire life without leaving Dunzen and never feel that they hadn't seen enough. It started out as the capital of Lanzen, but the capital moved to Palora some years ago to increase relations with Baradin and the mountain dwarves that were nearby. Rather than having an earl like the other cities, Dunzen has a mayor. When the Earl of Dunzen died mysteriously, the people were quick to put a person of their own choosing into power. Not wanting to offend the people of this highly populated city, the king decided to allow it. As a result, the leadership of Dunzen is frequently thumbing its nose at royalty. And again, some neat possibilities here. I love the idea of huge cities in fantasy games because it opens up the possibilities for types of adventures that you can have, maybe even campaigns. As Thane and I have talked about in the past, you could run an entire campaign in a city and never leave the walls. So the the thought of having a large city that's got all this intrigue and maybe its own economy, whatever, you can really build some interesting aspects into a game that way. And again, as always, the possibility of political intrigue is there. Because the government locally is thumbing its nose at the king, maybe that brings about a civil war. Maybe there's resentment that the king has and tires of, have, of being made the butt of jokes or being ignored in his commands to the people. Uh, there's all sorts of possibilities here. I really, really, really want to thank Ted for sharing his world-building thoughts with us stackers if you have world building thoughts of your own that you haven't shared we'd love to hear from you please do think about sharing those with us if it comes down to it we'd love to set up a a zoom call and record us talking with you about it but whatever the case we hope you have a good weekend and we'll have some more content for you on monday and as always stackers we'll see you here again next time at stack dice